But if you guys remember, we are doing a new series now. So we've skipped the, uh, I've finished the first Samuel, all the narrative-based uh, sermons, and we're looking at First John. And for me personally, First John is a very different beast. First John is very idea-based. It's almost like one big creedal statement. Well, obviously, First Samuel is very narrative-based. It's just easier for me to kind of wrap my head around it. Uh, but the cool thing about First John, it has so many deep and essential themes for the Christian faith. And that's what we're going to find out today. If you remember last week, Sam was talking about the fellowship quite a bit. What it meant to have uh, Kononoia Kono- oh uh, with, uh, uh, with one another, also with God. And John speaks about it at the beginning of 1 John, but he expands on it even more uh, in, the, in these verses as well. So we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to go from verse 5, so picking up from where Sam kind of left off. And we're going to keep on going all the way into the beginning of chapter 2. We're really going to break down what it means to have fellowship with God, with the lights. So starting there in verse 5, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. And so, John, John, in the previous, in the previous sermon, John, John says the proclamation of the message, the whole, the whole centerpiece behind his letter is for fellowship. And that's, that's really what it's all about. So we're going to be looking at what it means to have fellowship, not just with God, but with one another, and find the basis of everything. If, if you notice uh, in this particular verse, John frames fellowship around the character of God. So he says there in verse 5, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So right away we know that if we want to have fellowship with God, we have to be looking at the character of God. Because darkness cannot coexist with with the light. It just doesn't work out that way. Uh, and like I said earlier, uh, the idea of metamoia, it means, uh, not metamoia, sorry, <laughs> that means uh, that's a completely different Greek word. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, I'm, what I was referring to is the konoia, uh, konania, sorry, uh, which means to participate. And so we, we get this idea immediately that fellowship is participation with God. If we are to be in the light, we have to be living a life, a life which reflects the light we, we believe in. We can't coexist at the same time. And, and the reason John is bringing this up is because the context of this letter is that he's addressing some very bold claims from some very radical believers, or should I say uh, uh, false believers. Uh, as Sam uh, kind of unpacked last week, there's these uh, docetic Gnostics, these people who are separating the humanity from God, or the humanity of Jesus from his divinity. And, they were, and in the same way, they were separating the sin from their lives as well. And they, had, they, they held onto this belief that they were no longer guilt, guilty of sin, which on the surface, it sounds correct. 
But yes, Jesus has atoned our sins in, 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 in complete fullness. But does that mean we no longer sin after we're saved? No, of course not. That's ludicrous. But these were some of the claims which were emerging in the first church. And that is why John is addressing it here. So I have a few points that we can look at to break down what fellowship is. So genuine fellowship looks like this. It's, it looks like living in the light. It's conveyed through the, through the connection of church. And it's only attained through the advocates. So let's break that down really quickly and we can see what we can learn. My first point there, living in the light, is a little bit longer, but we'll finish strong with the, uh, the final two with nice short points, okay? So looking at living in the light. And uh, if, you're familiar, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you'll, you'll notice a lot of similarities between 1 John and his Gospel as well. A lot of common themes that kind of pop up. Light, darkness, uh, the idea, obviously the idea of fellowship. And it says here in John 3, uh, verse 20, that everyone who does not... Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And so we know immediately that dark deeds and fellowship with God do not coexist. There is no participation in God where we have this, this background sin in our lives, hidden in the darkness. But so often, that's, that's kind of how it goes. That's, that, in, the, in the first church, but also in our modern day as well, we can have a discon, disconnection between the way we live our lives privately and the public faith that we profess. But John is hammering this idea that it can't work like that. Evil deeds cannot be in the light. They need to be exposed by the light. And what we find here is that the Gnostics of those days, because of their beliefs that they were sinless, developed a moral indifference towards their sin, towards their lives, towards their faith. It's a sense that, well, if I can no longer be guilty of sin, I will not live my life however I so please. If it has no impact, then why would I repent? Why would I change? I've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And it puts them in a state of just moral indifference. They don't really care about us. So what's your, what's your attitude towards sin right now? Are you someone who confesses, brings your sin, uh, brings your sin into the light to be exposed? Or are you a bit indifferent to it? Do you have to believe that, you know, maybe, maybe you don't sin as much as you used to. Maybe you don't need Christ as much as you used to. We can get in that mindset, coming to church day, well, sometimes day after day, week after week at least, we hear the words, we hear the gospel, and then we can get desensitized to the fact that we do still need Christ. But you can, and this is an important factor, you, you, you can have fellowship with God and still sin. It's not as if, I don't want anyone here to be thinking, okay, I sin, therefore I no longer have fellowship with God. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what John is saying as well in, in, in this letter. Uh, we know this because we have the great example of Paul. In Romans 7, he talks about what he, uh, he longs to do, what he ought to do, but he still doesn't do it. He has this background sin in his life still lingering. He yearns, desires to squish it, to remove it, to live a pure life for Christ. But the sin is still present. But fortunately for us, Paul does define the difference between sinning and living in a pattern of sin. He says there in Romans 8, verse 9 uh, to 10, uh, he makes a distinction between the realm of the spirits 
in the realm of the flesh. And what we're going to be looking at today, essentially, is how the realm of the flesh, the flesh is not, uh, it cannot, cannot coexist with a walk in the lights. And when Paul talks about the realm of the flesh, he's talking about that pattern, that, that pre-safe state where we are enslaved to sin, just like Jesus talks about in John 8, where we are hopeless. We cannot, we cannot hope to break away from our sin. Yes, as Christians, we still sin. But now, as Paul, Paul um, argues, it's not in coordination with our desires. It's now against our desires. That internal spirit we have is now connected to the Holy Spirit. And now we, we, we live a completely different life. The pattern is different. And that's why here in uh, 1 John, uh, in, sorry, 1 John 1 verse 9, he says here, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is a little bit of a a challenging verse. It's not a very popular verse, as you can imagine why. (laughs) Confessing our sins is daunting. Bringing our sins into the open, having it exposed. Guys, it's a challenge. But it's so important. Because when you look at the Greek word for it, which, I mean, I'm going to try it now. I'm not very good at Greek, as you guys probably figured out by now. Uh, homologio. It, it means to acknowledge. And we need to always be acknowledging our sins. Because if you remember when you first became a Christian, remember, if you, especially if you did the Bible studies, if you said the Bible to somebody, before you look at the good news of the gospel, the salvation on the cross, you need a firm understanding of the, 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 uh, the reason why you need help. There's no, there's no point presenting a saviour for someone who doesn't realise that he's saving. And so sin is so important in our lives even after we are saved because we need to be acknowledging that we need help. There's this uh, awesome quote here from uh, Carter Conlon. He says, The end of ourselves is the beginning of God. Now, a lot of people read about confessing sin and think, okay, well, confessing sin does not produce salvation. That's unbiblical. Which, yeah, sure, you, I mean, there's support for that. But we have to understand the heart behind confession of sin. It's the same heart that produces a desire to have Jesus as our, as our Lord and Savior. When we confess sin, we are acknowledging that we ourselves are not in control. We ourselves are not good enough. And that, that posture of humility, that steers us towards the cross. Yes, in that way, confessing sin does produce salvation. Because it takes the earnest away from us and puts it onto Jesus. And this is uh, <laughs> there's this brilliant quote as well um, by Timothy Keller. It says, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. Now we come to God saying, look at all I've done. Or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him. To just wash. And it's so real. I mean, if you're at that point of your life where you aren't confessing sin, if you aren't exposing those dark, uh, the dark, the darkness within yourself on a regular basis to people, then you risk forgetting the need you have. You risk steering your eyes away from Jesus and back onto yourself and, per- and perpetuating this, this misconception that you aren't good enough. And uh, I was trying to think of an illustration for this, and I couldn't think of a better illustration since, since it's Mother's Day than a baby and her mum. 
I mean, if you, if you guys have ever been around a baby, you know they are needy, very needy. I remember when my youngest nephew was born, uh, and this hurts my heart to say this, but anytime he would look at me, I don't know why, he would cry, okay? <laughs> Massively, okay? Yeah, I haven't always looked this good. <laughs> I, I kind of grew into a ladder. But yes, yeah, from a... Back in the day when my, my, my nephew was a child, he would cry. And what was most astounding is that when he would cry, my sister would come running straight away. And it got to the point, I remember initially, that I would go seeking her. Oh my gosh, she's crying. What do I do? What do I do? But then later on, I just stood there, just waiting for her to turn up. Because that's, that's the type of, that's the type of a, a desire mom has. They just, they just hear the cry and they come. And now we wonder why Jesus tells us to emulate our children in our spiritual walk. Because children have that, that natural sense of need. They don't think to themselves, oh gosh, will I be inconveniencing my mom? Gosh, will I be hurting my uncle's feelings? No. They, they, they cry, they need. And the beauty is, is that a mom or a dad just knows what that cry means. They respond. And that's the type of dynamic we need towards, towards Christ, towards God. And our confession of sin is a cry that we need help. Uh, so yeah, our need, our neediness is a, an important, important thing. But for some reason, we, we have this tendency to forget our neediness. And I say that a little bit sarcastically, because it's quite obvious why we don't want to acknowledge our neediness. If you've ever been in a relationship, it's not good to be needy. Right? It's not good to, to, to have that dynamic. But in our relationship with God, it is essential. And uh, uh, John 1 verse 8, uh, oh, sorry, 1 John 1 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John, John adds a different element now. He says, well, if you are refusing to acknowledge your sin, and you are in self-deception. Everybody sins. Everybody falls short. Falls short. Uh, and everybody needs a, a, a savior in their life. And there's, there's so many different reasons for why we, we, we deceive ourselves. If you remember back to our, our first Samuel, we had this character of Saul. If you know Saul, he's the epitome of self-deception. He lives his life as a king, grappling for power and authority. All the while, he is undermining rebellion against God, the ultimate authority. And as you guys probably remember, it doesn't end well for Saul. The, the harsh lesson in Saul is that there's a bit of Saul in every one of us. Every one of us has a bit of self-deception embedded in us. We just don't want to acknowledge that we need help. We don't want to acknowledge that we are not good enough. We have all these, all these different things swirling around in our head. And this quote here, self-deception is not the worst thing that we do, but it is the reason we do the worst things. That's true for Saul. He starts off believing that he is this ultimate king, that he can get by on his own. But gradually we see Saul's, Saul's walk deteriorates. We see him eventually just completely disconnected from God and dying in a horrific way. In the same way, if we, if, we, if we hold on to that belief, that self-deception, that we, we don't need to confess our sins, we don't need to be transparent about who we are, yes, that's bad, but it leads somewhere much worse. It leads to us having disfellowship with God. It leads, us, it leads to us becoming darkness. And darkness, as we looked at, does not have fellowship with God. 
It can't coexist. And so what are some of the reasons that you might be self-deceived? What are some of the reasons that we as a group don't want to look at the real, the real us? And I have some of the, some of the possible reasons. And sometimes we know that we need to change. We need to change. We know that there's something in us which isn't quite right. We have to confront. But by doing so, it's going to radically affect our lives. We know that deep down, but we just don't want to do it. Or sometimes you just want to perpetuate that idea that you are good. You're good enough, you're successful enough, you're attractive enough, and you don't want, you don't want to confront the reality. Or maybe, for some people, self-deception becomes a habit. Maybe at this point in your life, you've been so, so good at deceiving yourself that it's just come second nature. And there is no conscious uh, 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 process in which you say, hey, I'm not going to confront it. You just do it subconsciously. Self-deception is ingrained in you. But I know for me personally, the, the main reason that I fall into self-deception is because of shame and guilt. I know that if I confess my sins, or I believe it, if I confess my sins, I'm going to be confronted not with purification, sanctification. I believe I'm going to be, believe, I believe I'm going to be confronted with guilt and shame. Judgments. And that brings me into my next point. Oh, not, actually, not quite my next point, sorry. Um, my next slide. <laughs> Where it's, uh, we have to be living out the truth. And oh, we'll look at this later on in, in First John as well. I mean, living out the truth does have a, a huge emphasis on obedience. And we'll look at that in uh, next week's sermon. But the, the point I really want to make from here, uh, uh, from, the, from the idea of living, living out the truth is that here in um, uh, John 3, 21, uh, it talks about, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. You might hear that phrase, sight of God. And for different people, it's going to have different meaning. You may hear coming into the sight of God, you may think to yourself, okay, that's God's judgment. He's going to crush me. But the reality, the truth of the cross is that our sins no longer condemn us. They no longer bring us to a point where we are going to be uh, under God's judgment and wrath. The truth is that we have reconciliation. That when we come to the cross, when we come to God, that the truth is that we no longer need to fear judgment because that judgment has been poured out into Christ already. We no longer have to, to shy away from it, conceal our sins. Because now when we bring our sins out, out into the open, we are illuminated. As it says here, we, are, we, we experience sanctification or purification. And we, we have to be thinking about, about the sight of God and what, what it means to us. Because if you still see the sight of God as, as this, this idea of judgment, then you're misunderstanding the reality of your, of your place in God's kingdom. And you have been... You've had the grace and the mercy of God poured out on you, and your sins no longer stand against you. Amen. They, are, they are no longer relevant at all. Yes, they need to be addressed for your own hearts, but in God's eyes, your position does not change. And so the question I have here is that do you hide your sins in the darkness? What sins do you have right now which you won't bring out into the open? You won't tell people. You won't even acknowledge for yourself. And then why won't you do it? 
Because I feel likely the reason you're not doing it is because you're not understanding the truth. That you can do it and you can have reconciliation with God. And that kind of uh, takes me to my next point, which is uh, fellowship with God is conveyed through connection. And I have a picture up there of the uh, dip ministry. It's for my Halloween nights. Uh, we had like a little Halloween party. We all dressed up and you can see me in the front. I'm Woody. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, the, the fellowship is so important. It's, it, it's essential. But you hear often these people who talk about how they can have a good relationship with God and not be connected to the church. And for that, I am extremely skeptical. And we've, we've spoken about this several, several times already. Our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another, is a reflection of the quality or the health of our relationship vertically, our relationship with God. And when we find ourselves disconnected from one another, it's normally a sign that we're having some spiritual issues in our personal relationship with God. Uh, verse 7 uh, of, uh, of the first John passage says, We have fellowship with one another. And the reason he's addressing this is because these, these Gnostic, uh, ascetic Gnostics uh, who, are, who are projecting this or uh, perpetuating this, this, this false beliefs about Jesus are in, in are leaving church and encouraging people within the church to leave also. And so he's, he's addressing it directly. I mean, these people are leaving church yet claiming to have fellowship with God? No. I mean, there's no chance that, that can possibly be true. And 1 John chapter 2, 19 uh, says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed they, that none of them belonged to us. So our participation within church and with one another is essential for our fellowship with God. They are interlinked things. So how is your relationship with church? That's a great question as well. I mean, our relationship with uh, God can sometimes be a little bit abstract, a little bit hard to define. Like, oh gosh, am I doing well with God? But we know when we're connected or not to church. We know when we feel close to somebody. I mean, are you, are you in a position right now where you can confess your sins to somebody? Where you can have that transparent conversation? Or are you so far on the outskirts you don't know who you would talk to? And if you are that person, I suggest you... You really plug in. You really get ingrained yourself into, into the fellowship. But don't think to yourself, okay, yeah, well, I'm really connected. I have a lot of friends. I'm fine. Because that's not really the, test of, really the test of fellowship. The test of genuine fellowship is our love for one another. So a different question you could ask yourself if you, do, if you are feeling connected is, how do you respond? Or how do you love those who are not connected? Do you treat the fellowship as your own personal comfort zone? Yes, these are the people I feel close to. These are the people I'm going to seek out. The reality, you push everyone else you don't tend to click with to the side. Do you have a genuine love for the fellowship? Because your love for the fellowship is a reflection of your love for God. And so my last part, just to, I have a, a quote from A.W. Tozer, who I'm quite a big fan of. I like, I like Tozer a lot. It says, um, if you are where Jesus is, you are surrounded by Jesus' people. It's pretty straightforward. Therefore, we ought to make the fellowship of the church the biggest thing in our lives. So often the church can be a side hustle. It's a thing we do occasionally on Sunday. But is it really the biggest thing in our lives? Is it our priority? Is the fellowship 
always in the front of our minds. I, I, I can't remember the last time I didn't speak to someone from church uh, or had a day away from someone from church. It's just the nature of it. I mean, the more, the more you're around people, the more they consume your lives, which in this case, is a good thing. And my final point here is fellowship is only attained through the advocate. And of all the points, this is the most essential. The temptation is to rely on our own strength, as we looked at in, in my first point. The temptation is to put the onus all on ourselves, what we can do. That's why confessing our sin is so important, because it diminishes the strength of self. It says here uh, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, if anyone does sin, and I like the fact that John starts chapter 2 with this, if anyone does sin, because immediately it reassures us that everyone, uh, it reassures us that someone, or we, we will sin eventually. It's not like when we say we're going to go on our, on our lives and not sin again. But, he, but he, he, is, he is reinforcing this point that uh, the salvation plan of God is only through Jesus. It's only, it's only through uh, the, the, the sacrifice, the atonement of sins on the cross that we can hope to have any fellowship with God. And we by ourselves are, are inherently dark. We have, we have issues we have this, this boiling sin beneath us. And we, we need someone to atone it for us. And the phrase atonement of our sins, obviously it's a, it's a reference to the, the, the Jewish sacrificial, sacrificial system. Uh, if, you, if you read the Old Testament, um, it, it's referring to the idea of, uh, back in those days, that would, would take an animal or sacrifice an animal and that, that blood would, in, in a sense, cleanse the sins of Israel or whoever was sacrificing that animal. And the, the, the beauty of that is that it was tangible. They took an animal, they killed it, they saw the blood, and it, it hit home. And, and that idea that their sins produced death was well and truly ingrained in the people of Israel. Now, unfortunately for us, or fortunately for us, we have an advocate, but unfortunately, we don't have the tangibility that the, the people of Israel had. And we have a far better sacrifice, no doubt, a sacrifice which covers all sins, past, present, and future. But because we don't have that tangibility, we can sometimes forget about the, the realness of that sacrifice. And we can sometimes rely on our own selves and we can, we, can, we can say, yeah, yeah, I mean, Jesus is my advocate. He's interceding for me. But is it, is it real in your life? Does it resonate on a deeper level? There's this, oh, the way, the way we, we figure out if it does resonate on a deeper level is by looking at our attitude towards sin. And really, and really, everything in this, in this section of 1 John, our 1st and 2nd John, centers around our attitude towards sin. And our fellowship towards God will be determined by our attitude towards our own sin. And if the sacrifice of Jesus is real to you, if, it's, if it is tangible, then you change. I mean, it, it, it doesn't get any more clear than that. You repent. If your sins really have been crucified on the cross, then you will sin occasionally. But that pattern of sin is now broken because of our gratitude towards what Jesus has done. And I love this passage in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Uh, it says, For Christ's love, Christ's, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced 
that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And that word compelled. Do you feel compelled to change? When someone brings uh, the word of truth into your life, exposes your sin, do you feel compelled to change? Or have you been having the same sins in your life exposed again and again and again? And maybe you got to the point where people stop exposing sins in your life because they know it's not going to produce change. We need the heart, if we really understand the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus, we need a heart which is driven, which is compelled to change. Because that's what the love of Christ does for us. So just, oh, that was it. <laughs> I was one slide behind. Yes, if you guys were wondering where that slide was, it's up there now. And so, yeah, that's what fellowship is. If we want to have fellowship with God, we have to be living in the light. We can't be having a darkness behind us, always, always suppressed, always to the side. That's not what it means to live in the light. That's not what it means to have fellowship with God. We can't participate with God if we continue to live as if we don't believe in Him. And if we, uh, if, if we want to have a, a surety that we are connected to God, that we do have fellowship, then take a look at your fellowship with one another. If you are really in the body of Christ, we are connected. That's the idea of the body. Ligaments tie us together, the ligament of Jesus. Or you're kind of hanging a bit loose somewhere, not quite connected properly. If so, I encourage you, connect yourself. Get in, really, really, really ingrain yourself into it. And finally, our, our fellowship is only attained by Jesus. He's the advocate, meaning he is the one who... who uh, I guess in the illustration of like a cosmic courtroom, he's the one arguing our case. He looks at, I mean, when God looks at your sins, Jesus is right beside you saying, hey God, that's all right, I've taken that off him. It's okay. Because of him, because of our advocate, we can be declared righteous by God. How about we have a quick prayer and then we can enjoy some fellowship. Uh, Heavenly Father, I think so much we have the, uh, the words of John and, and, his, and his experiences uh, to help us grow and develop in our, in our knowledge of you as a light. I pray, Lord, with the idea, knowing full well that you are light, Lord, we can live a life, a life which is worthy of that. And that we can uh, bring our darkness to you, Lord. Not, not looking to or fearing to be judged or destroyed, but we can have confidence knowing that you will reconcile us, Lord. And you can purify us. And then this process of sanctification is not always easy, Lord, but we have an advocate which will always support us during that, during that, uh, uh, <laughs> during that process. Uh, Lord, I, I love you, Lord. I just pray that we can take these words today and uh, apply it to our lives in a deep, meaningful way and that the self-deceptions that we may have, Lord, can be broken. That we can look at ourselves soberly for who we are and that it doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian for, it doesn't matter how much we know, our need for you is as great now as it's ever been. And it would never diminish, Lord. We'll never be good enough without you. I thank you for that fact that I don't have to rely on myself, Lord. I don't have to be, don't have to be burdened with carrying my, 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 the weight of my own sins, Lord, but you've taken them off me. I, I thank you so much and I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.